In Jesus' name, amen. James 1, 16 through 18 is where we'll be this morning. Um, and what we're going to be talking about is the goodness of God. Uh, why do people say that God is good? Uh, that's really the question that we're going to be talking about, uh, that we're going to try to answer today. Because what I think happens often is we determine whether or not God is good based on what he does for us. Uh, let me give you an example. So if we avoid a car wreck, we say God is good. If you didn't have your power cut off this week, you would say God is good. My pipes didn't burst. I, I turned the faucet on. I let it drip. I remember to do that. God is good, right? You pass an exam. God is good. You get a job promotion. God is good. Now, what happens though when those things don't happen, we forget to say God is good um, because oftentimes the way that we understand the goodness of God is really based on our circumstances and what happens around our lives. But the, the truth of the matter is, biblically speaking, God is good. And he is good all the time. And it's important for us to know that that is something that God is, that his goodness comes only from God. And so James writes this letter James, uh, to these people who need to be reminded of the goodness of God. Now, why is that? Well, it's because these people once were a part of the early church in Jerusalem, the first church that ever existed. And they began to love Jesus. They began to worship Jesus Christ alone. Uh, they, they turned away from their Jewish heritage to follow only Christ. And then persecution arised in Jerusalem. And then it forced these people who were Jewish people, but now they're Christians, out of the city. And they were now to live in places like northern Palestine and um, in um, other places right outside of Jerusalem and Israel. So they're, they're, they're miles away from where they grew up. Now 10 years have passed. They faced persecution. Their life was threatened. And now James writes to them to tell them, to count it all joy when they face various trials, which means they're facing things even beyond just their life being threatened, but they're just facing the trials of a Christian life. How to raise a family in, in, in the gospel, how to love your wife, how to love your husband, how to handle your money well, how to tame your tongue. Like all these things James is talking about that are practical things and how to live a Christian life. Now he tells these people this because they faced 10 years of 10 years past of persecution. Now they're living in a totally different place. And now what he wants them to know is the goodness of God. And this is important because if you're anything like me, I'm, I'll pray for you, but if you're anything like me, if someone wrongs you or you face a trial, what will often happen is you'll find yourself trying to justify your sin. Like I do this all the time. So if someone wrongs me, like, I have a very competitive, revengeful spirit. Like, if you wrong me, I am coming after you, right? I am going to do whatever I can to, to, to get you, right? And, I, and if somebody slanders me, I want to slander them. I want to make them look foolish. I don't want to look foolish. Like, I want them to look foolish. Now, I'm just being completely honest with you this morning. Now, if you're like, oh, well, he's a pastor. He shouldn't be like that. Well, you're probably like that too, and I'm just being honest, all right? But, like, so... So stop it, all right? Um, and, but that's, that's me. Like, I, I can do that because I feel like I'm right in doing that. As if God thinks of my sin less because of the, because of the fact that they started it, right? And, and you know, and, and I oftentimes I'll meet with a couple, a married couple. And, and one, of the, one of the 
uh, spouses cheats on the other one. And there's a tendency then to respond. Well, I'm going to go sleep with whoever I want to, right? But there's this tendency for me to say, no, you're not licensed to do whatever you want because you've been wronged. You can't just go and live and go on a, a, a pornography binge, or you can't go and just hook up with somebody online or go to a bar and find a one-night stand. That is not your license to sin just because you were wronged. And so now you have these people who are gathered or scattered all around Jerusalem who had faced many trials, and you can imagine them saying, I I consent. God put me in this situation, and now I can have the freedom to do whatever I want. But no, James, he comes on the scene in James 1, and he begins to rewrite the script. No, you can't do whatever you want. By the way, you can't blame God for this. He says in verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. So James says, look, you can't blame God for this. You you can't sin just because you're in this situation that God has sovereignly placed you in. He says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. The devil didn't make you do that. You did it. You did it. Your sin drew you to this. You wanted it, and you would do it again, even on Sundays. And and he's saying, this is, you cannot sit there and blame God for your sin just because you are in a trial. You can't stay angry at God in a trial. And then we we echo the words of John. First John, it says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness. I think Pastor Scott did an excellent job explaining last week. And so where we're at this morning As James, he picks up this argument that he's beginning to build. You are not licensed to sin just because you are facing difficulty and hardship. And so he picks this up in verse 16, and that's where we'll be. And my goal this morning is that we will leave seeing that God is good even in the face of hardship and difficulty. So look with me, if you will. James chapter 1, verse 16. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have them up on the screen. And uh, we'd love to give you one on your way out if you don't own one. James 1, verse 16. It says, do not be, what? Deceived, my beloved brothers. This is the first thing that he begins to expound in verse 16. Do not be deceived. And what is he referring to? He's referring to Do not see God wrongly. Do not be ignorant about God's character. Because what are the things he's addressing? Well, you can't blame God for your sin. You can't blame God when you're tempted. Don't be deceived. Don't be foolish thinking that this is God's fault. So he's saying you need to know God and his character. You need to know how God works and operates. If you can remember back a few weeks ago when we talked about facing a trial, we saw James tell believers, he said, if, you, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask God who gives generously. If so if you're in a trial, you need to ask God for wisdom. Now, what is wisdom? Because I always struggle like, okay, what am I asking God for? So I'm in a trial and I'm asking God for wisdom. Am I asking, is wisdom then some sort of majestical trance he puts over me where I can't feel anything. Is that what wisdom is? It's saying, God, I'm in a trial. I need your wisdom. Does that mean I'm just going to smile all the time and, and I act like a super Christian because I'm facing a trial and he's given me this wisdom to overpower? Is this some sort of majestical thing? No, it's not that at all. Here's all wisdom is. 
It's what you're asking God when you ask for wisdom, you're saying this, God, help me know you and your character so that I can rightly respond to you in a lifestyle of worship. That's what wisdom is. We're just, it's just knowing God. It's just knowing God so we can appropriately live for God. Do you get that? Now, this is the way that the Bible describes worship. Uh, Romans verse, chapter 12, it says that uh, we are to present ourselves a living sacrifice. Present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and blameless and acceptable before God. That is the lifestyle of worship. Worship is a lifestyle. When you're sitting here this morning and you're listening to this sermon, you're actually worshiping because you're wanting to respond to him. Now, I think sometimes we get lost in what is worship, defining worship, because we say worship only when we're talking about music. Let us stand as we worship God. And I gotta be honest, I love musical worship, but that is one type of worship. I love when people can come together and we can sing loudly praises to our God and King. I love when we can lift our hands and we can respond emotionally to what we hear and how we sing. Some of us do the, you know, this, my TV's this big. Some of you have bigger TVs. Some of you Mufasa it. I mean, whatever. I mean, you have different responses, and I, I think I'm fine with that. But let me just tell you, that is not all that worship is. It's not just singing. It's actually living a life out of response to who God is. It's knowing him and his character and responding to that. Now, let me just tell you why that's important. Let's just say um, this past week was Valentine's Day. Now, I'll be honest with you. I don't need one day uh, a year to express my love for my wife. I'm not even saying that because I'm that guy. I'm just saying that, all right? Um, Our birthdays are like right before and after Valentine's Day. So we we don't really celebrate it that much. I'm just being honest. I mean, if you do, that's fine. Let's just say we did this past year. Let's just say we did last, this week. Um, for us, like a date night is a big deal, all right? Um, mainly because we're in our mid-30s. And date nights are like gold for people in their mid-30s who have children. And they're like, are we going on a date? I mean, we would kill for like a date night, all right? Um, and so when we go on a date night, it's, it's a big deal because when you have kids and they're running around and they're, they're screaming, they're, we got two boys, they're aggressive and tough and yell a lot. And so we don't hear each other very much, right? And so when we go on a date, it's like, oh, you know, you got a haircut. You know, it's like we're trying to, you know, your dog died. I didn't even know we had a dog. You know, we're like, we're catching up and we're, it's a download of information. That sounds really boring when you're in your 20s and you're staying up late and doing whatever with your wife, you know, you're like, whatever. But we're actually like, we enjoy it because it's like, it, it is an information download, but it's good because we're engaging one another. We're having good conversation. I'm learning more about my wife. I've been married for almost 10 years. Uh, we, we, I learn more about her every single day. And it's just time to hear what she's passionate about, what she loves, what drives her. She hears what I'm passionate about, what, love, what I love, what drives me. And, oh, that, that thing has a leak in it, by the way. You need to fix it. Yeah, I know. You know, it's that, that kind of stuff too. But, but it is this relational element of talking and getting known. Now, what if I just took her out on a date and I would say, Jessica, I'm going to sing to you, honey, this whole date. And the whole song, the whole date is just, 
I love you, Jessica. Your hair is awesome. Your eyes are pretty. And I'm just the whole time singing to her. And every time she tries to talk, I'm like, shh, right? I don't want to hear from you. I just want to sing to you, right? Well, singing is obviously, like, if I could sing, it would be a wonderful thing to do for my wife, would it not? But if I just did that, there would be no relationship there. Like, eventually, I would have to hear from her in order so I can rightly love her. I mean, she has to hear from me so she knows how to rightly love me and serve me so I can serve her. And so there has to be this relational element to God to where we don't just view worship as just singing. It's got to be more. We've got to hear from God. We've got to know God. We've got to know his character. Because in your darkest hour, in your darkest hour, when you face the most difficult challenges of your life, it's rare that you're going to break out in song. Like you're going to need to know who God is. So that you, that you can know how to love him through the difficulty that you're facing. You know that he's sovereign over all things. That he is sovereign and he's good. He's the first cause of everything. But he's going to sustain you till the end. He's going to finish the work that he started in you. You need to know that about God. And, and you can't know that about God unless you read the Bible and you know his character. And so when James, he comes on, he says, listen. Don't be deceived. He's saying, don't see God any other way than how I've talked to you about who God is. Don't, talk, don't see Jesus any other way than the fact that he is good. And so then James, he begins to describe the goodness of God. Look with me, if you will, verse 17, chapter 1. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Do not be deceived, my brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Everything good comes from God. That's what he says. Very simple. And this is nothing new to a Jewish hearer. They would have read Psalms. They would have read Proverbs. They would have read what Psalm 1830 says. This God, his way is what? Perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. They would have heard things like Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is what? Perfect. Are you all awake? Perfect. Is that up there? Yeah, there it is. Like it's right there, right? Perfect. Reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Making wise the simple, the, the way of the Lord, the law of the Lord, God, his character, he is perfect. And But James is doing something different. They would have understood this as a Jew. He's speaking to them as believers. He's saying, look, listen, if you are a Christian, if you have been bought by the blood of Christ, if you've repented and believed in the gospel, if you are a believer, everything that God places in your life will end up being for your good and it will cause you to cling to the gospel all the more. Every good and perfect gift is from above and it comes from God. And then he says something else. He says, coming down from the Father of lights. Now, what does this mean when it says coming down. Now, I'll be honest with you, like, things that, um, 
I got to be careful here because I don't want to say anything mean. But seriously, those signs on the road, like those black signs with the white letter that are from God, annoy me. All right? Like the one that says, don't make me come down there, God. Like, what is that? Like, I don't know anyone that has ever seen that and said, you know, my life was in total shambles and I saw that and it changed everything the way I view God. I got pulled over and just, I cried out to him and he saved me. Like, I was totally fine until I saw that. I was totally bad until I saw that sign and it just saved me. Like, no one ever says that. Like, I can't stand signs like that. But it's also not even an accurate view of God. Like, when we talk about God coming down, when we pray to God and we say, God, we often say silly things like, God, would you be with us today? Like he said, like when Jesus Christ died on the cross and he rose from the grave and before he ascended to heaven with, with the Father, he told his disciples, hey, listen, lo, I will be with you always. And lo is not like one person. There's not like a guy named lo. He's talking to everybody. Every single one of you, I will be with you always to the ends of the earth. He is already present. So when you're saying like, God, be with us today, he's like, uh, I'm here, thanks. Like, I don't need your invitation. What about when two or three are gathered? Everybody says that. Like, that's about church discipline. It has nothing to do with us calling God to be here. And that doesn't even make sense. Like, if you're blown in your car, you're with God. It's not like he needs two people to show up, Right? Oh, Ben was there. Oh, Jake showed up. Okay, now God can come, right? Another person, two or three. Oh, oh three. Oh, good. Well, God's really there. You know, it's like, it doesn't make any sense. So he's present with us all the time. Lo, I will be with you always. And so what does it mean when it says coming down from the father of lights? It's not so much this idea that it's God is not here present with us. And now all of a sudden we're in a trial and we need him. And he just shows up. He comes and shows up. No, he's always present with us. But what does he mean when he says coming down from the father of lights? It's really a literary device to draw our attention to what it means. He's, it's really a figure of speech because God is omnipresent. He's, he's everywhere all the time. And so when it says coming down, he's saying it's coming from something that you can't gain yourself. It's coming from a place that you cannot obtain as a human being. And coming down is giving you the picture that this is something that only comes from God. It's not a distant word at all. It's a very intimate word. You need him. You need him. And so he says, coming down, he's saying this is a gift from God that you cannot obtain in and of yourself. You need him. And then it says another word. It says, he's, James then describes him as the father of lights. Now, what does this mean when he says father of lights? Because if you look in other places and if you look on Google, you won't find it anywhere else in the Bible. But we know, uh, if you study some, a little bit of church history, you could see that uh, this is an ancient Jewish term to refer to God as creator or the giver of light or the giver of really everything, the source of all things. Now, if you want to a humorous book in the Bible, um, you can read the book of Job because it's the most real, authentic book I think you can read in all of the Old Testament. Because what you see is a guy who has everything and then he has nothing. And all he has to do is now talk with God and try to figure out how to trust God in the things that he's lost. And he's lost literally everything. You read the first two chapters of Job, they can be very depressing. He's like, man, this guy's lost everything. God permitted this? Like, he let Satan do this? Like, which demonstrates how big God is. But it also just shows, man, this is a guy who trusted God. 
And throughout the book of Job, you see this dialogue happen between God and Job. And they're beginning to kind of, Job is asking him a question about his character, and then God responds and says, no, this is the way that I am. And it happens throughout the whole book. It's a very long book. And then you see at the very end of Job, particularly Job chapter 30, verse 28, Job is asking God about his character. Now I love the way that God responds because it's just humorous. He says, Has the rain of father who has begotten the drops of dew, from whose womb did the ice come from? And who has given birth to the frost of heaven? Isn't that strange language? He's like, like I'm the father of the drops of dew. Like, I'm the one who birthed the ice storm this past week, right? Like, how do we deal with that? Like, we're angry at the ice storm. He's like, I, I caused that. I'm the one who did that. And, and who's given uh, frost to the heaven? He's talking about, man, I have done everything. I am the source of all light. And James says that he's the father of lights. He's the source of all light. The sun the stars. He's the source of every light. But James also describes it in a way that he's, it's not like light that we see. He says there's no variation or shadow due to change. Now, it's not shifting. It's consistent. It's stable light. Every star will eventually burn out. The sun will no longer exist at some point. Sorry, Al Gore. It will not exist, Right? And so it's, it's going to happen. And he says, but there's no variation or shadow due to change. It's un, God is not changing. He's not changing. His way is always perfect. So this is what James does. He says, listen, do not think of God any other way. Do not be deceived. This is the way that I want you to see God. He is the creator of all things. He's sovereign and good over everything He's caused these trials in your life, but he's still good nonetheless. He's the father of lights, and he is the definition, and he is the essence of what is perfect. So everything, if you love God, everything that he places in your life is perfect. Now, it sounds, it doesn't seem perfect to us, but it's perfect for him because he's the one who has the plan, not us. Thank God. Thank God we don't have the plan. Thank God he has the plan because his plan is perfect. It's perfect for his glory and for his, for his name. And so you, you, if you are a believer, in a sense, you are almost invincible in the, in the fact that God can use anything in your life for his glory and for his, pers- uh, for his purposes. It says his way is perfect. He, there is no variation or shadow due to change. Now, <laughs> if you're like me, this isn't enough. Like you're just going, okay, he's the creator of all things. He's sovereign and good. And that's how I know he's good. How am I supposed to believe that he's good just based on that? Well, fortunately, uh, and I'll say knowing God as creator is a wonderful thing. We need to know that God is the creator of all because it's really the hub of how we see the rest of scripture. But it's not enough to really see the full weight of God's goodness. So James then adds one more thing. Verse 18. Of his own will... He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now, the word of truth, what does that mean? Um, If you see this 
throughout Scripture, there's multiple times throughout Scripture where you'll see this phrase show up, the word of truth or the word of God. Paul talks about it. The writer of Hebrews talks about it. And sometimes, sometimes when you're reading this phrase, the word of truth or the word of God, it is hard to differentiate between is the writer talking about Jesus? Is the writer talking about the Bible? Is the writer talking about the gospel? Which one is it? Because it's so hard to figure out. Like when the writer of Hebrews says that the, the word of God is sharp and, and powerful, sharp, or quick and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword. Is he actually talking about the Bible or is he talking about Jesus or is he talking about the gospel? Like when do we determine which one he's talking about? And here's my answer. Yes. Yes. Like, I think he's talking about all of them. Because really, in order for us to know Jesus, we have to know what the gospel is. In order for us to know what the gospel is, we have to know, we have to be informed by what the Bible says about what the gospel is. So I think it's all of these things that he's talking about, and it, and it brings life to us. It gives us hope because all scripture points us to one person, one hero of the story, and that hero is Jesus. It's the whole purpose why the Bible is written to show us Christ. And I think Peter uh, acknowledges this. He says in 1 Peter 1, verse 23, he says, You have been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. Now we could read that and we think Bible, or we think Jesus, or we could think gospel. And I say, it's all of them. It's all life-changing truths that draw you to who he is. And so James says something similar, and he's referring to really the instrument that God used to bring people to himself. But the way that James does it, he's not just saying, read the Bible, you become a Christian. No, he says this, you've been brought forth. You've been brought forth, verse 18, by the word of truth. What does brought forth mean? You've been given birth to the word of truth. That's what it literally means. He gave new life. In a, a biblical language would be, you've been born again to the word of truth or by the word of truth. Now, what on earth does this mean? Like, it, it really freaked Nicodemus out when Jesus said, in order for you to come to me, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is like, um, I have to go back inside of my mom. That's weird, Right? Like, that's strange. I'm not doing that. If that's what it, no. He's like, no, it's a new heart. It's a new life. You're brought forth by the word of truth. You're changed by the gospel. And so now James says, do not think of anyone, think of God any other way than this. Do not be deceived. He's the creator of all things. He's the giver of life. He's the giver of everything that is perfect And this same creator gives you the most valuable gift of all, and that is the gospel. And that is why we know that God is, in fact, good. And that is why we know that he is good all the time, even when we face hardships, because we realize that the gospel is enough. Now, I want to show you a beautiful parallel that scripture uh, displays for us. If you look at James 1, verses 16 through 18, and then you flip over to Romans 8, which is what we're going to do, you will see an amazing parallel between these two, and they are saying literally the exact same thing. Now, let me start with verse 28 of Romans 8. It says this. 
The Apostle Paul writes, and we know that for those who love God, so this is for those who are believers, this is what Paul says, to believers only, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, what does that sound like? Did we hear anything recently that sounded like that? Yes. James chapter 1. He says, Paul says, for those who love God, all things work together for the good. James says in James chapter 1, every good and perfect gift is from above. Same thing. Same amazing truth in response to the gospel. James also says that out of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits. Now look at what Paul says in Romans 8 verse 29. He says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be, listen, the firstborn among many brothers. Firstborn among many brothers. He says this in Romans 8, James chapter 1. He says, we are kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now I'll explain what that means in a minute, but let me, let me show you how these two really tie in. Because James says that we've been brought forth by the word of truth. We've been, we've been given a new life. We've been born again by the word of truth. But notice what Paul says. It's just very interesting. He says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Now, living in the South, sometimes people are afraid to talk about predestined, what that means. Like I actually sat in a room with a guy who said, I don't like predestination. And I was like, um, you can't not like a word that's in the Bible. I'm sorry. Like if you're a Christian, you can't just hate Bible words. Like part of your job is to love the words in the Bible. I'm just saying. And then we also say, well, this doesn't seem like love. If he's, if he's chasing us and he's pursuing us, that's not loving. Well, Ephesians 1 says, in love, he predestined us. So it is about love. And it's really what predestination is. It's really God adopting us and calling us his children. Now, the way we understand that is really how we view this word that he says, for those he foreknew. Now, some will hold the view that this means that God he looked through the corridor of time. He saw what was happening in the future and he saw Ben Tugwell and he thought, that's a good catch. There's a good one right there. I will, I will adopt that one. That's a cute one, right? I'll take that one. And we can hold that view if you want, but the problem with that view is everything in the Bible like when God looks through the corridor of time, he doesn't see future righteousness in Ben Tugwell. When God looks through the, the corridor of time, he sees that we're all dead in our sins. He sees dead people who need to be made alive by the gospel. And so if we view it any other way, we're going to see it wrong. And how messed up is that to view it that way? I mean, I love adoption. I think it's an amazing thing. Some of you in this room, uh, I know for a fact that you were adopted. I know that some of you are adopting or have been thinking about adopting. There's several in our church who 
uh, have adopted children. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful thing, mainly because it displays what God did for us. I think more believers need to really strongly consider adoption because it just displays the beauty of the gospel. But there's some adoption agencies, they'll give you a book with pictures and they'll say, pick one. Now, what's the problem with that? Well, everyone wants to go after the pretty babies. The ones with red hair are taken right off the top. <laughs> That's a beautiful, I've always wanted, you know. And you just go right through there and you pick the cute ones. But what about the ones that aren't as cute or what you think is cute? Well, they're not picked. What if God did that? That would be messed up, right? He's just going, oh, I see something good in you later and I'll adopt you and I'll call you my daughter or my son. No. God did not pick us because we, choose us because we were a good pick. He actually chose us because we weren't. And the gospel is not about making moral people better. It's about making dead people alive. And so when God looks through the corridor of time, he sees people who need a savior and he saves them. Now, how he does that, I am not sure exactly. Why he does it the way he does it, I am not sure exactly. We know that he does it for his glory. That's what we know because of Romans 9, the very next chapter says exactly that. He's going to do it for his glory, for his purposes. We don't know how it all works, how it functions. I can't explain it, but I'm just glad he does it because he adopts us. He calls his children. Now we can call each other brothers and sisters because of his adoption, because of his love for us. And so predestination is not a bad word. It's a wonderful word because it's a biblical word. And he does it out of his love because that's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. And what about those he adopts? He says he calls us, verse 30 of Romans chapter 8. And those he predestined, he also called. What, about, what does that mean when he says called? Well, I can tell you this. When I was 11 years old is when I met Christ. And for me to even pay attention longer than 10 minutes was an absolute miracle. And I swear to you, I think it was, I, I still think back to when I heard the gospel preached where I actually understood what it was. I felt like I was being like punked or something. Like I don't think that show was around then, but I felt like it. Like I could have written the show. Because I felt like that guy was speaking directly to me. That pastor, I swear he looked at me at least 25 times. And it was just strange. I'm like, me? You, like, but what that is, is this God is calling me. He's calling me to himself. And he says, those I've predestined, I will call. And then he says, next, and those he called, he also justified, which means this, we're made right before God. Which means there's nothing I can do within myself to obtain the righteousness of God. There's no way that I could get to heaven based on, based on my own works or my own efforts. That's ridiculous. We need to be justified. We need to be made right with God. And that only happens through Jesus' life, that he lived the life that we should have lived, and Jesus' death, that he died the death that we were condemned and we deserve to die. And that he rose from the grave and he conquered the penalty of Satan's sin and death. And if we put our hope and trust in him, we have eternal life. And he, through that, he justifies us. He positionally makes us right before God. And then it says, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. He gives us the inheritance that he promises us in Ephesians chapter 1. That we will be with him in glory forever and ever. Amen. 
with no sin and no fears and no doubts and no various trials. That through the gospel that he will be enough. And for us here on this earth, as we live our lives as believers, as we look to the day that we will be once glorified, we are sustained and we are held up by the gospel. And I love the language that James uses and I love the language that Paul uses in Romans 8 because they both say the same thing. James says that it will be a kind of first fruits. Romans says that it will be the firstborn among many brothers. What they're saying is they're talking to first century believers. Some of the first Christians who ever lived. That's what they're saying. But James says it's going to continue. It's going to keep happening. Like God is going to continue adopting people and drawing them to themselves. And then they will respond by repentance and belief, and they'll find only their hope in him, which means this. If he sustained those people in the first century, um, he can sustain us in 2014 by the beauty and the glorious gospel. And so my hope this morning is that you would just simply do this, that you would just cling to the gospel. If you want to know why God is good, he is good because of the gospel. Because he has made you right before God. And you didn't deserve it. And you didn't do anything to obtain it yourself. It's because he did it. He's that good. Now what I typically do in this part of the sermons is this. I typically give you a bunch of points to think about and wrestle with. And pray over as we respond. But I'm not going to do that this morning because of this. There's rich beauty in this passage. In Romans 8. And I would be remiss if I didn't just finish reading it. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to finish reading what Paul says to the church in Romans. And I hope that would, you would cling to every single word about what he says and our hope in the gospel to see that God is, in fact, good. Romans 8, we'll pick up again, verse 31. The word of God says this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him who graciously give us all things? Sounds familiar? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed intercessing for, or interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or dagger or danger or sword? And as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to the slaughter. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, listen, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Is God good? He's good.
Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the glorious gospel.